Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen, and let's stand for the reading of our passage this morning. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. It should be remembered that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned while writing his this second letter to Timothy. His second imprisonment is not like uh, the imprisonment we read about at the end of Acts, which was essentially house arrest. The year now is about AD 66, and the apostle was imprisoned with chains. He was contemplating his death. He knew his death was imminent because he had likely received a guilty verdict and the punishment of death by the sword. It was probably official at this time. When he was called on the road to Damascus, way back in Acts, right? When he was called... On the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he uh, would now serve instead of persecuting, told the Apostle Paul that he would suffer for him. He He had made other people suffer who had served the church, and now Paul would suffer in service of the bride of Christ. Speaking to Ananias, the man who first had to deal with with uh, the converted Saul, the Lord said, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking of Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. So Ananias gets the, the mission statement of the Apostle Paul, and it is, Go before the authorities, go before Gentiles, go before Jews, but also I will show him how much he's going to suffer for my namesake. He had suffered greatly to serve Jesus Christ, imprisoned multiple times, beaten, he says, beaten times without number, right? He lost count of how many times he had been beaten. The Jews lashed him five times within an inch of his death. Three times he was beaten with rods or sticks, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, not just once, but three times. He spent a whole day and night in the middle of the sea, and he says he had many sleepless nights. He, and, and this may be the worst one for many of us, he often went without food and water, right? He often went without food. And amazingly, he says that when he looks back through those burdens that were great, there was also a difference and perhaps a heavier burden, and that was this. Apart from these external things, 
there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So he carried about that concern for all the churches. And so I imagine that rather than seeing the, the third stoning or the, you know, whatever number stoning he received as an opportunity to retire, he saw it as this is a hindrance to me doing, getting to the next church where I can do my ministry. He was a man who had a calling from the Lord, no doubt. Thirty years after Paul's death, uh, Clement of Rome, uh, a pastor, Clement of Rome, wrote a letter to the uh, church in Corinth. This would be in the year 96 or so. In that letter, he writes, uh, he speaks to the martyrdom of Peter and Paul and the suffering they endured. I want to share a little bit of that with you. He, he writes, But to leave the examples of former days, let us come to those who were athletes in the days nearest to our own. Through jealousy and envy, the greatest and most righteous pillars of the church were persecuted and maintained their athletic contest unto death. Let us set before our eyes the good apostles. Peter, on account of unrighteous jealousy, underwent not one but two, uh, not one or two, but many toils. And having thus borne witness, he made his way to his allotted place of glory. Paul, on account of jealousy and strife, showed the way to the prize of endurance. Seven times he wore fetters. He was exiled. He was stoned. He was a herald both in the east and in the west. He gained the noble renown of his faith. He taught righteousness throughout the whole world. And having reached the limit of the west, he bore testimony before the rulers and so departed from the world and was taken up into the holy place, the greatest example of endurance. Endurance. And so the Apostle Paul's life, by the very plan of God, was marked by continual suffering. That suffering was not simply the suffering of all mankind as we live in, in a, a fallen world. It was specifically suffering because of his calling to serve Jesus Christ. He knew the cost of following Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul knew that his ministry was not going to be some wonderful, cushy, well-funded, I'll-be-flying-in-first-class sort of work. It was going to be suffering. And yet he did it. He knew it was going to be suffering, and yet he did it. He never stopped doing it. Why? Because he had a calling from the Lord. And very simply put, he, he knew the suffering was worth it. He knew suffering for Jesus Christ was worth it. He wrote in Romans, For I consider that the, suffering, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, the suffering, it's not worthy. It's, not, it, it's, it's so easy to take this when you compare this with that. What comes next? Jesus Christ not only made the Apostle Paul suffer, right? That's not all that Jesus did for Paul. Jesus Christ redeemed the Apostle Paul and the whole world. The Apostle knew this. You know, the Apostle knew this as he did his work, and he had the, that he had the redemption of Jesus Christ, the very, you know, the very revealing of the sons of God deeply ingrained on his mind. So when the, the second and then 
you know, the, the third shipwreck and then the third and the fourth and the fifth lashings came about, he would suffer knowing that the glory of what laid ahead was his. There was glory. He was not short-sighted. He was not forgetful about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. The world is the Lord's, and all things in this world are working toward his glory. So bring on the suffering. Bring on the suffering. What is coming will, be, will, will make the suffering more than worth it. The apostle had many good things in addition to his sufferings, but even of these things he writes, but whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All the good things, he's like, yeah, it's loss. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having, and this is where he, I think the tone changes in this passage and he just starts, he just, it's a doxology of types and he just starts getting excited about what lies ahead for him because of the redemption he has in Jesus Christ. And he says, I count, I've suffered the loss of all things, count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Right? He's just like, ah, glory. So when the Apostle Paul writes his dying words to Timothy, our passage this morning, we must remember the whole of his ministry, right? And the hope of his calling and, and all of that being in the midst of suffering. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now let's dig into that a little bit. What does the Apostle Paul mean when he says that he is being poured out as a drink offering? Uh, various offerings for cleansing the people of Israel including, included the pouring of wine or strong drink on the fire of the altar. Uh, for example, here's a description of one of the regular offerings for, in number, Numbers 28. It says, then the, Lord God, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall... Be careful to present my offering, my food, for my offering by fire of a soothing aroma to me at their appointed time. You shall say to them, this is the offering by fire which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs, one year old without defect, as a continual burnt offering every day. You shall offer the one lamb in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil. It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai as a soothing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. Then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight as the grain offering 
of the new of the morning and its drink offering you shall offer it an offering by fire a soothing aroma to the lord so why is the apostle paul uh, comparing himself to a drink offering and very simply put i think he is reflecting on a life spent on poured into the lord many may think that pouring water or wine on the sacrifice or into the ground is a waste but the Lord sees it and remembers it, right? Think of David asking his men to retrieve water in the midst of battle, and they do it through great danger. And then his unwillingness to drink that water because he wants to give up that water as an offering to the Lord. We always think, why would he risk his men's life if he, if he wasn't going to drink the water, you know? But we should, we should be thinking it's better to risk one's life for you know, is it, this is the question, is it better to risk one's life for a drink of water or for a sacrifice to God? It certainly makes sense of why he would send his men through danger to make a sacrifice to God. Of course, the latter. We, but remember, God knows. Um, Doug Wilson writes, a drink offering poured out on the ground looks as though it is gone forever, but God keeps track of everything that goes into the soil. God keeps track of what goes into that soil. And that is the apostle's main point in this passage. He has done the work, and now he's being poured out into the soil. There's, and, and there's now a reward for that work. He's not ashamed to remember that reward. He is not naive to think that he shouldn't think of that reward. That reward motivates him to obey God's calling. The Father will remember this drink offering of his life, Paul's life in in the service to his son. Likewise, the apostle mentions the fact that he has fought the good fight, a military metaphor, and he has finished the course, an athletic metaphor. In an evil world set against him, the apostle has fought against the evil. He's fought, and it was a good fight because it was for good ends. It was for the gospel. He has engaged in combat. In a hostile world set against him, the apostle has competed in such a way as to overcome these obstacles meant to slow him down. He has competed with endurance. And so he's using these metaphors just, just to say that, you know, that the battle's almost ended for me. The, the race is almost over for me. The drink offering is pouring down into the ground. And then he says in the end... I I think this sums it up. I have kept the faith. He has kept the faith. The life of the apostle has not merely been a battle to test his fortitude or a, a contest to test his endurance, but it has been about faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone has a battle, right? Many foolishly fight against the Son of God and take it as their calling in life to do that, to fight against the Son of God. Everyone has a desire to compete, in contests, many, many compete in order to assert their own God-likeness. But, but the Christian, like the apostle, fights and runs for no other reason than it is the faith. It's the faith, right? Our faith produces the fight. Our faith produces the endurance in us. We don't fight and run because we want to give meaning to life, right? That's what everybody else does. They fight and run to give meaning to their life. 
We don't fight and run to give meaning to our life. We fight and run because God has claimed us and shown us himself. All of us, by the work of the Holy Spirit, have been knocked from our horses, as was the Apostle Paul. Up to that point of being called, the Apostle Paul's fighting and running had been counter to God. He wanted to indict God, right? He hated God, but then... After his conversion, all those sufferings, all those battles, all those courses, all those contests that God made him go through were endured for the sake of loving God and witnessing to his glory, period. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me, Paul writes to the Philippians. Now, do you have those kinds, that kind of spiritual eyesight? Do you see the battles you are having with unbelieving family members as part of the race that God has given you to endure? Right? Do you see that daily routine of disciplining your children, of educating your children as part of the battle that God has given you to fight? Do you understand everything you do as a part of the reason that God did not transport you out of this life the moment you were regenerated? Right? Do you see that God has called us to keep the faith, to keep the faith, and that all of our circumstances are meant to provide the battlefield and the obstacle course on which we endure? All of these things. But the end is the keeping of the faith. Don't get confused. Any man, any man who suffered the things the Apostle Paul suffered would have been tempted to think that God was against him, that his ministry was a failure, right? Certainly by the disastrous 21st century means we judge ministries. Everybody would think Paul was an absolute fool, because he didn't he wasn't running a thousand right but but it doesn't matter it doesn't matter he kept the faith he kept the faith that's your calling that's my calling that's all of our calling is to keep the faith that is what will save us in the end is keeping the faith right not not the numbers, not the battles you won, not the contests that, that God persevered you through, but you're keeping the faith. Paul knew of the Son of God's suffering and cross-bearings and that he, he, and that he told us to bear those crosses, and, and praise God, he kept the faith. You know, after a battle, medals for courage are given out to warriors. After a race, trophies are given to strong athletes. And after this life... Crowns or garlands of righteousness are given to keepers of the faith and servants of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. That phrase, the crown of righteousness, can also be translated the crown, namely, Righteousness. What is being awarded to the servants of the Lord on the day of Christ's return? It's righteousness. 
You're being awarded righteousness, right? Actual righteousness, a permanent and perfect state of righteousness and enduring holiness. If you are not in Jesus Christ, this will not sound that thrilling to you. Yay, holiness. If you don't know the holiness of God, if you don't know Jesus Christ, then it does not sound thrilling to receive righteousness as an award on the... But if you are a Christian, you have agonized about the fact that you continue to sin after you knew Jesus and came to faith. You've agonized. You've agonized about the fact that you are united to Christ and continue to sin because of that remaining corruption in you. Well, then, you know the amazing, unparalleled, unequaled gift that this permanent righteousness will be, right? No more regrets, no more outbursts of anger, no more sinful desires, but, and this is most important, no more sinning against God Almighty, your Father. Only everlasting righteousness, only living in such a way that glorifies God only and all the time, And all given to you is a gift by faith in Jesus Christ. You will know finally what the fellowship between God Almighty and man was meant to be. What it was like to walk with God in the garden. If perfect righteousness doesn't doesn't fill you with, with great hope, I'm afraid you may be longing for heaven for the wrong reasons, perhaps just to be free from the race and the battle here and now. That will be welcome, but that will certainly not be all. We will be righteous and in the presence of the God of all righteousness. Now think a little more about what the Apostle Paul says here. Who is the one who awards that righteousness? It is the righteous judge. The righteous judge will be the one to reward those crowns of righteousness. And look, we just read, we just read Ezekiel. Every time we drop into the prophets, we're reminded of the holiness of God, aren't we? And we're reminded of the fact that he deals with sin. And we're reminded of the fact that that he, he has no trouble scourging his children. He has no trouble wiping out nations. He has no trouble exiling and destroying his own people. You know, I, on, on this thought, I, we were down at the abortuary yesterday morning, and I, I prayed. I just walked back and forth, and I prayed. And I was praying that God would, would cause the trees to fall on the abortuary and destroy it. And my second thought was, and God, there's no reason why you shouldn't cause, cause a tree to fall on top of me and snap my neck. There's no reason at all. God does not have play favorites, and there's no reason why he, he, he couldn't do that. He is holy and righteous, and that would be holy and righteous for him to do it. Nonetheless, I kept, after that thought, kept asking God to destroy that place knowing that he could destroy me along with it. But, but we don't conceive of God in these ways as righteous and holy. We read the prophets and, and he's, he's, he's angry, right? He's angry. 
And it's that judge, it's the, it's the angry Lord Jesus Christ with the sword coming from his mouth, that's the one handing out crowns of righteousness. And by faith, we receive these crowns of righteousness as a gift. But think of the one giving the gift, the righteous judge, the one that Solomon contemplated on his deathbed when he wrote, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And the one whom John the Apostle saw and described with these beautiful words, and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the one handing out the crowns of righteousness to his children. Imagine the glory of that moment. Imagine the glory of that moment. If you get goosebumps for royal weddings, and I don't, what will it be like when the creator of the universe, the very word of God, glorifies you, and gifts you with pure, unblemished, and eternal righteousness. This is another level of pomp and circumstance. Right? This is another level of glory. The Apostle Paul awaits that glory, which is imminent for him. He will be executed, and the moment he departs from this world, he will have a prelude to that glory, being given pure righteousness, but awaiting the resurrection of his body. And then this will be our final status for ages and ages, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Right now, right now, undoubtedly, you're in the midst of battles. Paul is telling Timothy to persevere through the battles that he has. He's checking out. Timothy has to keep fighting. Right Right now, you are in the, the midst of battles in various points uh, in the course, this obstacle course, but be comforted with these words of the Apostle Paul. There will come a day, if you have lived for Jesus Christ here, when your faith will be rewarded with permanent and perfect righteousness. Let that day and that that reward permeate your thinking right let it give you that second wind so that you so that at the end of your days you may be able to say along with the apostle paul and every saint who ever called on the name of jesus christ i have kept the faith i have kept the faith and then and then rest in your righteousness enjoy that eternal sabbath where you can't even contemplate sin. It's glorious. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have shared your righteousness in us through your Son, through the Spirit. Oh God, I pray that we would 
continue to battle, continue to fight, that we would fight the good fight, that we would run a good race so that we might, at the end of our days, receive that crown as we have kept the faith. Oh God, be gracious to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.